we are currently studying one of the most dynamic and captivating passages in all of the New Testament. It is a text that features the life-rescuing and life-transforming power of our Savior. And it's an awesome testimony to consider the power of God in the pages of Scripture. And I thought it would be good for us, and this will be used to kind of set the tone for our time together to consider four aspects of God's power before we begin. The first aspect that I want us to consider is his creative power. And we are a biblically literate church, and we know that in the opening two chapters of Genesis, we see God's creative power put on display. And then in Revelation 4.11, it actually provides for us a purpose for creation. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because of your will. These things were created because of your will. These things exist. We find out the, the purpose. And God wants us to recognize and to ascribe it back to him as the source of power. Not only do the scriptures speak of his creative power, but they also speak of his sustaining power. Hebrews 1.3 says and it's a reference to Jesus Christ, that he upholds all things by the power of his word. God didn't just create and then leave creation on its own. The life and breath of his creation is fully dependent upon him. Our next heartbeat, our next breath, our next meal, whatever it might be, is sustained by God so that the purposes of his will can be accomplished. The sustaining power of God is, is truly fascinating to consider when we think about the reality that he upholds everything in creation in, on the earth and in the universe simultaneously. That's mind-blowing to think about. The third aspect is his redemptive power. After we see the impact of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and the ravaging and destructive effects of sin come into this world that utterly destroy our relationship and our fellowship with God, he reveals his redemptive power and plan so that sinners could be reconciled to him through the means that he alone would provide. And really all of scripture is telling us the, the story of redemption the story of his plan and his redemptive power that culminates in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That redemption is possible for all those who come to God on his terms. And they can receive reconciliation that's made available through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It is the message of the gospel, and it reveals the, the, the life-saving, life-redeeming power that only our Savior can provide. Now, if that wasn't enough, right? I mean, we got it. Creative power, sustaining power, redemptive power. What, what more could there possibly be? Well, there's a fourth critical aspect of God's power that we cannot miss, and one that I believe does not get featured enough. And that is the transforming power of God. 
that after being saved by his redemptive power, there's a transforming power that begins to work within each and every heart that allows us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. God's word describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. When Christ is unveiled to the New Testament believer, not only are you and I able to behold a reflection of his glory as if looking into a mirror, but the Apostle Paul says that we're being transformed. Metamorpho in the Greek. There's literally a spiritual metamorphosis that's taking place within our hearts, that's changing us and helping us to become more and more like Christ. And that power originates in the Lord, and it continues through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the, uh, the Apostle Paul, he was so convinced of this reality that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he was writing the Philippian church in verse uh, six of chapter one, he says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete, perfect, accomplish it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what that Greek word is saying. Complete, perfect, and accomplish it. And why am I sharing all this with you? Because as I considered and meditated on these aspects of God, it, 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 it helped me to see just how personal his power needs to be in our lives, right? He created us. He sustains us. He redeems us. And he transforms us. Nothing is more important to God. Let me say that again. Nothing is more important to God right now in your life, believer, than your transformation. And we can get so consumed with all the other matters of life and ministry that at the very heart and, and at the core of God's agenda is our transformation. Us becoming more and more like his son. And he calls each of us to embrace it. Do you want to watch the Lord do what no one else can do? Do you want to watch him set a captive free and literally see him transform his life? Do you want to see his divine, sovereign, and saving power on full display? I do too. I do too. Let's continue our study in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, to see how it can bless us. And as your notes in the bulletin indicate... This passage discloses six ways that Christ's power reveals his mercy and authority so that we trust him to save and redeem any life, including yours and mine. And we had a chance last Sunday to look at the first three points, which really reflect God's redeeming power, if I can tie it back to our introduction. These final three points will reflect God's transforming power, which is directly reflected in our fourth point, that we'll cover in verses 14 and 15, which is this. Our Lord's power transforms. Now, to set this up and to, to get the full effect, we're going to go ahead and, I haven't read the passage yet. I'm going to start in 
verse 1, and then I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, and then we're going to cover four, verses 14 and 15, our Lord's power transformed. But we're going to start in verse 1. It says this in the New American Standard. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had been often bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he, Jesus, was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. My friends, we see it right here, don't we? The, the mighty and awesome transforming power of God that apparently many had the opportunity to observe as verse 14 indicates. The herdsmen, who were probably hired hands, who were also responsible for watching 2,000 pigs, okay, just run off a cliff and perish. I guarantee you one of the first things they did was go to tell their superiors they, certainly they didn't want to be held responsible, right, for what had just transpired. In any culture, I believe news like this would travel very quickly. And so a massive crowd assembles to come see what has occurred. And Mark's account doesn't give any indication about the size of the crowd. But in Luke 8.37, it shares that all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to lead them. So we can be certain that this, it's a massive crowd that has shown up by this time. And what did they witness when they arrived at the scene? Verse 15 describes the demoniac in three specific ways. It says, They came to Jesus and observed the man sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. This man who was normally spotted running around crazy and who couldn't be bound with chains or shackles he was restless always out of control and here he is sitting down in the greek it is literally sitting still that is unbelievable unbelievable and it is more than probable that 
some had never even seen this man sitting before. Okay, so they're, they're, they wouldn't even recognize him one because he's just sitting down, right? Now he's got clothes on, he's sitting still, he's, he appears to be in his right mind. So like, uh, they're not making the connection. And the very nature of demon possession, by the way, is that demons are unable to rest, right? It's a, it's a part of their torment. Sharks swim in the water and they're, never un, they're, they're unable to stop and, and sleep and rest. Did you know that? They, they have to constantly, I, have, I believe that this is why they're so angry too, that they, they have to constantly keep moving in order to run water over their gills in order to breathe. And the same is true with, with demons. It, it, it appears that they're not given any rest. It's, it's like Cain. You'll look back into Genesis uh, 4.12 when it refers to him as a vagrant and a wanderer, right? Because of the consequences of his sin, that that was part of his punishment. And he was like, oh, it's too much. I cannot bear it, right? And this is the reality of, of demons. There is no resting place. It is a, a, a paradox to the gospel and the rest that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal rest that he provides. They are unable to rest. And it appears that the only way for them to get some rest is that if they somehow get inside a host, either a person or an animal, and I believe this also explains why when they knew they were going to be expelled out of the man that they made a request to Jesus, you'll recall what? Who sent us into the... Send us into the pigs. Don't send us into the abyss where, where, where there's no possible host, where there's not even the smallest glimpse of rest. Send us into the pigs. And that's what happened. I think Jesus even showed mercy. Believe it or not, I think there was even a glimpse of mercy that the Lord Jesus Christ allowed. Well, verse 15 also shares that they observed the man clothed. One of the ways that demons tormented people was by forcing the removal of clothing. And you can recall our passage that we went to, cross-reference last week, when we looked at the seven sons of the Sceva in Acts 19, and the demon-possessed man basically called out the seven sons of Sceva, and they were like, the demon-possessed man was like, who are you? We recognize Jesus and Paul because he's an ambassador of Jesus, but, but who are you? And then the demon, it says, overpowered him and subdued him. And it says what? That, and I put the verse down right here. It says that he ended up uh, overpowering them. He subdued them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay? In their effort to destroy people, it appears demons not only shame they're, they're victims by overtaking them and having their clothes removed, but this act also allows them to display the physical and bodily harm that they caused to their victims. This man had been thrashed against the rocks, and it was like a trophy for the demons to show that, look, look at him, look at the torment that we're, we're putting on him. And I think we can even see another reality of this shame as the Lord Jesus Christ was stripped of his clothing and the demon-possessed soldiers potentially could have been demon-possessed that, that took, took his clothes and divided them and cast lots for them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Verse 15 shares a third observation. 
That was perhaps the most unexplainable to the crowd when it states that the man was in his right mind. In the Greek, this is saying he was self-controlled, that he was sensible, sophron in the, in, in the Greek. Okay? He was sober-minded. And so they could not believe what they were seeing. This man who had literally walked around as a, a real-life Tasmanian devil. You know, we can all picture the, the out-of-control uh, Tasmanian devil in the cartoon. Maybe some of you haven't seen it, but he's out of control, right? He's just completely, wah, 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 right? And, and th that's really what this man's life was like. He, he was completely subdued. He was under the demonic influence, and he was absolutely out of control, and the life-transforming power of our Lord touched his life. And there he was, sitting still, calm, clothed, in his right mind, completely subdued. And James Edwards says that is a picture of discipleship and salvation, a restored individual sitting at the feet of Jesus Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines the term transform this way, to change radically in inner character, condition, or nature. And that is just what happened to this man. In Romans 12, 2, a familiar text, right? The Apostle Paul exhorting the believers in Rome says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that talks about believers being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. And our transformation as believers bears witness that our Lord's power does indeed transform. And when the gospel took root in your heart, believer, that began a process of transformation. There was redemptive power that was there that allowed you to be saved captured, sealed by the Lord. But then there's a transformation that begins. And it gave you and I a sensitivity to the commands of the Lord. And it brought a sober-mindedness. It brought a self-control that did not exist before. And we hear testimonies of God's transforming power all the time. Our Lord's transforming power in working in a marriage that is crumbling our Lord's transforming power that's able to save other personal relationships that have been severely damaged. God's transforming power that frees someone from a life of drugs and alcohol. God's transforming power that frees someone from pride and selfish ambition and self-promotion and slavery to this world and materialism. And on and on the list goes. What area of your life still needs to be transformed? Your patience with your spouse? Your anger with your kids? Your deep-rooted lusts in your heart? I don't know what you're thinking. And Pastor John, he's been spying on me again. No, no. All I did was take 30 seconds to consider my own life and my, my own need for transformation. 
and my own need for continued growth in the Lord? Are you willing to trust in the Holy Spirit's power to transform you in the areas where you need to be transformed? Are you willing to embrace the commands of Scripture and obey them that will lead you to transformation all to the glory of God? And I wanted to provide a picture that really just captures the, the radical nature of transformation. Can I do that? All right, we're going to pull it up on the PowerPoint right here. And it's actually the, the stages of metamorphosis in the life of a butterfly, okay? And, okay, we're going to talk about butterflies for a moment. Like, um, it doesn't seem like the manliest thing to talk. We're going to talk about butterflies. No, um, but there's, there's power. When I, when, I, when I look at this, what do you see? What do you see when you look at that picture? I see the transforming power of God. In the very earliest of stages, I see his creative power. How, and we, we know about this just even through the, the birth of our children, that how the, with genetic coding and purpose and design, right from the very beginning, from, from the very beginning, all of the structure within the DNA that is going to be responsible for that child's life is present right there, in there, according to his creative power, according to his purposes. And then what's he do? What kicks in? Right? That life needs to be sustained. It needs to be sustained. And I believe our, our friend, Mr. Caterpillar, in the second stage really reflects the sustaining power as, he, as he's going about the earth and he's gathering the things, right, the food and all the necessary things that the earth can provide so that his life can be sustained. But then something happens. And all of this, it's something amazing that happens. According to God's plan, according to God's design and his purposes. That all of a sudden it goes to this, this pupa stage, right? And, and it's, it's, it's inside. And if you want to go on, online and read about what's taking place, they still have no explanation for how all this occurs. That's like, because they can't cut it open and they can't watch it while it's taking place. So they've, they've done like uh, CAT scans and MRIs and the whole, trying to figure this out, right? There's just, it's crazy what takes place. And there's a transformation that takes place over, I believe, about 16 days inside of that cocoon. And then all of a sudden, it gives birth to something. All of a sudden, it reveals the transforming power of God. And it's fascinating. And I have a question for you, church. Would you say what you see in stage two and what you see in stage four, that those are radically different in nature? That they're, they're radically different, right? And my point for sharing this with you is that the same thing exists when we talk about unbelievers in their stage and believers in the transform, transforming stage of God. It's radically different. It's radically different. And I don't want to preach an illustration. That's not the point. But I think there, there are a number of parallels that we can look up and see that just if we were to start with where we exist as human beings and that God allows the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust, right? That God sustains everyone on the earth 
as a measure of favor. In that aspect, he is indeed the savior of all men in, the, in that degree. But, but look at this. This thing is earthbound. Can, question for you, can that caterpillar ever do anything to break free from its bondage to the earth? Does it have anything within its own capacity to free it from the, from the earth? The answer is no, because by its very nature, it is bound to this world. And that is a picture of us as unbelievers. By our very sin nature, we are bound to this world, bound to live for this world until what happens? Until that redemptive power of God came into our lives through the message of the gospel that redeemed us, that, that captured us, that literally, if we want to even make a direct reference to the pupa stage, it sealed us, according to Ephesians 1.13, sealed us, and it began a transforming work. Did you know this, that in, in, in that stage, that uh, inside, the, inside the pupa, that, there, that there's even aspects of where the flesh is, is dying. Certain aspects of the flesh are, are, are dying inside the cocoon. Sound familiar? Death to flesh, right? Putting the deeds of the flesh to death that we're called to in the gospel. And then what does it allow what does, the, what, does our, what does the redemptive power of the gospel allow us to put on display? The transforming power of God. And my friends, when I look at that butterfly, I'm not looking at it from, oh, that's a glorified state. Oh, that's what it must mean. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's transforming power being put on display in real time in our lives right now. And it should be for all to see. It allows us to separate from this world. We are the called out ones. It allows us to, to be, but, but are we still, we're, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? right? Even a butterfly has to come back down to the ground to get its food, has to rest. I mean, there's, there's a lot of illustration here. Again, I said I wasn't going to preach it, but looks like I'm doing that very thing. But isn't it awesome? I mean, isn't it awesome to see the physical transformation that takes place in the physical life of the butterfly? And isn't it even more awesome to, to consider the transforming power of God as it relates to the spiritual life of the believer? Unbelievable. And in both instances, the nature of something is being completely changed. And this should cause everyone in the world to be excited, right? The man who was just demon-possessed, who is now sitting there clothed and in his right mind, certainly everyone in the region of the Gerasenes was going to come and just be overwhelmed with excitement and, and, and thrilled about what took place. Look at the end of verse 15. In verses 16 and 17, it says, And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. Our fifth point cannot be missed, and it's this. Our Lord's power also terrifies. Instead of rejoicing about the marvelous deliverance of this man, his, his torturous condition, the people, rather than celebrating, they're gripped with fear. They have realized that they're in the presence 
of one who had extraordinary power to perform such a miracle. And all the details, according to verse 16, were described. The, the herdsmen shared what they had witnessed. Jesus expelling the legion of demons out of the man and directing them into the herd of the swine. And the evidence of the miracle was absolutely concrete. They had the man who they saw wandering the, the tombstones and the mountains before going crazy, sitting there clothed, sober-minded. They also knew that 2,000 swine had just vanished. And the, the, the noisy craziness of the herd of swine that normally existed in that area was gone. And you guys know my background a little bit. It's a farming background. Uh, worked on a hog confinement that had 8,000 head of hogs. At one point, I, there were, in the uh, gestation barns, there would be um, maybe 700 or 800 sows in, in the crates that would be ready. And can I tell you what, how loud that was? Just, I, I think I shared it before. Like the sounds were so crazy. Like sometimes you'd even hear words in the blends of the sounds. You hear your name. It was just really weird. So we, you wear a headset in there because it was so, so violently loud. And that was just several hundred. This was 2,000. Jesus had just silenced another storm. And the first was physical and the second was spiritual. And in both instances, it left those who had witnessed them in great fear, didn't it? In both instances, it validates Christ's power. It validates his div divine, uh, his deity and his sovereignty to control all things. And ironically, when Jesus calmed the physical storm on the sea, it made a spiritual impact on his disciples. And it encouraged them to focus on the Lord and to trust him. And when Jesus calmed the spiritual storm in the demoniac, it appears only to have made a physical impact and generated fear about losing material possessions. And thus the crowd asked Jesus to leave. And only the demon possessed man previously is, is compelled to pursue Christ, to follow him. Commentator Donald English says, Mark could hardly spell out more clearly his conviction that even the most powerful of healing miracles cannot and do not of themselves induce faith or provide a foundation for it. Everything hangs on the openness of the observers to see beyond the miracle to the person at its heart. End quote. What's he saying? You, the, the focus cannot be on the miracle. It must be on the miracle worker. And the garrison crowd, they'd reached the conclusion that if having Jesus around was going to mean more loss of cattle, right? Yeah, um, a little preaching and teaching was going to be okay. But if you're going to upset the, the financial apple cart, so to speak, you're not welcome to say. One pastor shared the price of bacon was about to go through the roof. You wouldn't be able to get your hands on a pork chop. What other material possessions might be threatened? And so what do they do? They implore him. They beg him to leave the region. And a similar fear, I think, often takes place today. 
when people see the life-transforming power of God take place in someone that they know, it generates fear. All of a sudden, there's an inward transformation that's producing an outward reality and behavior that they're not familiar with, and it stirs up fear. That person becomes convicted. And we know this as believers. You become convicted of your sin, and new desires begin to grip your heart. You no longer desire to serve the world and money, but are now committed to the master you break away from corrupted business practices. You experience the Holy Spirit's conviction and forsake sexual sin for the sake of Christ's testimony and Christ's purity. You sever worldly relationships that will only lead you astray. But then it happens. Your, your family, your friends, your coworkers. And looking, and they're saying, what, what's happened? And they can't explain it. You're not the same person that you used to be. And they want the old you back. They want the person that fits their agenda and their purposes much better, right? It happened to me. It did. What happened to obnoxious and, and foolish party John? What happened to drunk and, and joke-telling John? What happened to the guy that we knew who had, who had no convictions? Where did he go? We, we, want, we want him back. We want him back. And many of you have had a similar testimony and experience and it is the life changing and life transforming power of God church amen amen it is and this connects us perfectly to our sixth and final point of this passage so far it has revealed six ways that Christ's power reveals his mercy and authority so that we trust him to save and redeem any life including yours and mine last Sunday we covered our Lord's power to rescue our Lord's power prevails our lord's power expels today our study has helped us to see that our lord's power transforms our lord's power terrifies and finally our lord's power testifies look at the at verse 18 in the final three verses it says as jesus was getting into the boat the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him and he did not let him but he said to him Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. You know that none of the gospel accounts let us know exactly how long this man suffered in this condition. In Luke 8.27, it, it indicates that it was a long time, or at least that he went without clothing for a very long time. And so that would give an indication that he was demon-possessed for a long time. And this man was overwhelmed by the Lord's compassion. It was highly unlikely that anyone had shown him any measure of kindness or compassion. And then the Lord shows up and comes to him and restores him. 
And what's he want to do? He just wants to be with Christ. He just wants to be with his Lord. And now with Jesus honoring the wish of the crowd to leave, this man is literally begging Jesus to accompany him. Listen to this encouraging perspective that this pastor shares about this verse. From a human point of view, nothing says as much about your love for Jesus and the reality of your salvation than does a burning desire to be near Jesus. The things of God are precious to those who love him. His word is a treasure chest to be explored and enjoyed. His worship is an event that cannot be missed. His songs are precious because they afford us the privilege of lifting our voices in praise to him. His house is a special place for which our hearts yearn. His presence is delightful and eagerly sought as one passes through life. The redeemed soul just wants to be with Jesus and nothing more. Is that the burden of your heart? Is being near him the deepest longing of your soul? Oh, those who are redeemed as in a close relationship know the bliss of a few moments spent with him. What a savior. After all he has done for us, how could we not want to be near him? End quote. What a beautiful expression of the spirit-filled life when it is focused on Christ appropriately. But I have a question for you. As Christians, do we always feel that nearness? Aren't there times where, I mean, truth be told, where we feel distant? It's true. You know, King David, a man after God's own heart, right? Experienced the same thing, and he writes about it in the Psalter. That because of the effects of his sin, that oftentimes his Lord felt distant. And you know, the one thing that always brought David back, that always kept him grounded, right, is he looked back and he always saw God's hand of faithfulness in his life. He saw God's life rescuing and life transforming power. He writes about it in the Psalms. It always delivered him through his periods of darkness and sin, and an even greater power through the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit dwells within you and me and all who believe today. It is a testifying power of the work of the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance of sin, confession of our sin, seeking God's forgiveness, seeking forgiveness from others. And what a fitting reminder just as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table, second hour, right? It's a power that testifies. What sin in my life is potentially creating distance between me and the Lord and impacting my nearness to him? What sin am I not forsaking that I need to be repenting of. The Lord can show you through his transforming power. Well, there's another way that we can also experience nearness to Christ that our passage reveals. Jesus had other plans for this man. And in verse 19, our Lord helps him to see what they are when he says, 
go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Our Lord's power testifies. And he wants us, as I shared at the beginning, he wants us to ascribe it back to him, all glory and honor. And what was that third word? And power. He wants us to testify of his power at work in our lives, in our situation, through our desperations, through our circumstances, through the heartaches, through the turmoil. He's there. He's with us. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will not forsake you. And that's why at the heart of this proposition and of this passage is to trust him. Trust him. It's so interesting that Jesus supplies a direct reference to his deity in this passage, even referring to himself as the Lord. He was away from the Pharisees. He was in a Gentile region. Probably felt the freedom that he could do that. Pointed to himself. And if you pay close attention to the sermon proposition... And, I, I, you know, the elders will share this with you. The, the word selection is always intentional. It's always deliberate. And you, you may have noticed uh, in, in the words that in, in the purpose statement of the proposition, the so that, right? What, what God would have us grasp, what he would have us guess, so that we trust him to save and redeem. I use two words there. And I think that for some, when you look at those words, save and redeem, you might think, well, aren't they pretty much the same thing? Aren't they they're, they're synonymous? Actually, they're quite different. Question, is saving a coupon different than redeeming a coupon? Very different, right? Coupon or coupon, depending on which part of the country you're from. But is saving a coupon and redeeming it? They're radically different. Saving it means that we captured it, right? And we're keeping it so that it isn't wasted, that it isn't destroyed, right? And redeeming it means that we turn it in and that we assign value to it and that it's going to serve purpose. And that is just what happened in the life of this man, that the Lord Jesus Christ, did he save him from the destruction of the demons and the darkness? He did. And he redeemed him. He assigned new value and purpose to his life. What would be the new value and purpose of his life? Our final verse reveals it in verse 20. <laughs> this is unbelievable. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The healed demoniac from the region of the Gerasenes is the one who is assigned by Jesus, really the first missionary, the first Gentile missionary to actually go to other Gentiles. And what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to witness and testify of the life-transforming power of Jesus. And you know what lesson Jesus was ultimately teaching him? Did Jesus let him get in the boat with him and go where he was going? No, but he taught him a valuable lesson. You don't have to be with me physically to be close to me spiritually. 
What can you do? How can you draw near? How can you be closer? Talk and give testimony to the transforming power of God. Talk to others about the mercy that he has shown you in your life. And I, I, I have a map that I wanted to pull up just so you could see where the region, the Gerasim territory is off to the right, and they had taken the boat over from the Capernaum side on the, on the west side over to the east side. And Gersa, the area was right in the middle on the, on the right side of the Sea of Galilee. And then you see that region down there on the bottom, Decapolis? You know what that word means? It means 10 cities. And that's why it was named Decapolis, because it consisted of 10 cities. And this one man who had his life transformed by the power of God was going to go reach those 10 cities. And God saved you, my friend. God redeemed you. And every professing believer at CBC And what will be the redemptive value of your life? How will your life testify of the life-transforming power of God? I think it's fitting to close with the same words that Jesus shared with the man in our passage in verse 19. He says this, Go home to your people, And report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. At school, at work, at home, at care group, wherever it might be, let us talk about the mercy of God being extended to us and the life-transforming power as we look to his word and we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. Wherever it might be, may we always be exalting our Lord's power to save. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads right now praying and thanking you for just the study of this passage which has been so deep, so rich. And we're thankful We pray for uh, the mercy and grace that you've showered upon us through the reality and the, the, the gospel taking deep root in our lives to have a radical effect on our transformation. And some are some of us are early in our transforming stages. And others of us have been being transformed for decades now. And oh, the beautiful colors of a a butterfly flying so freely high above the earth captures our attention when in contrast to the slow, methodical, earthbound life of a worm or a caterpillar that doesn't have anywhere near the perspective because of that old nature. And it's only through you. It's only through your grace. It's only through your goodness. And we pray as a church family, as 2016 has arrived and is upon us, that we will make this year count. Help us to make this year count. Help us to, help us to grow. Help us to be transformed. Help us to be in your word. Help us to be spirit-led. 
Help us to see the power and the reality of your redemptive plan and purposes that you created us for. Help us to trust you, to trust in you greatly. Help us to lean on others around us in the body of Christ, in our care group. Hold us accountable to encourage us. There are so many measures of mercy and grace that you provide that we could literally, if we we think about them, they just never cease. And your word even reminds us in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, morning by morning, new mercies we see. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto us. We celebrate you. We ask that you'll bless us during the second hour. Help us to continue to stay focused on Christ. Help us to celebrate his work in our lives. Help us to understand and consider the reality that the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that dwells within each of our hearts so that we can be transformed. And it is the greatest power that exists. And you want us to trust you. Thank you again for this time. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.